0: with Jesus. Now, the, the the reason that I bring up all of these epic fails is that it shouldn't even be a surprise that even in a really a, a well thought through planned out wedding, even like the one that we're going to see here, a wedding with servants, a wedding with a master of the banquet, that things don't always go the way that we want. So starting in verse 1, the Bible reads, "On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee." Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. The wording in the original language makes it clear that Jesus was invited. It's not so clear that his disciples were invited, by the way. So it's kind of an interesting point. But you see discipleship in action on a positive note, because they're going to go everywhere the master goes, and they're going to imitate the one that they follow. And they will stick very close uh, to him. Hopefully they didn't drink an allotted amount of wine Uh, that would have caused a run out here. But again, that's all speculation. When the wine was gone, although it, it, it lands right on the heels of that. When the wine was gone, Jesus's mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Now in in different translations they try to soften a little bit that phrase because it it doesn't sound quite intimate, does it? Yeah. Woman? All right? Try, try saying that to your own mom and see how it goes. <laughs> but we don't get much help from the rest of the phrase either where where here he's saying why do you involve me? It's a phrase that's used as an idiom, you know, a, a figure of speech that's used quite often through the, the biblical record. I, I, I think at least a dozen times I've come across it. For, for example, in the Old Testament, when Elisha says to the king of Israel, why do you involve me? The, the phrase is, what are you to me, is, is the literal rendering of it. What are, what are you and I to, to, to one another here? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to deliver us into the hands of Moab. So in that case, not to get too deep into the second king's passage, but but Elisha is trying to distance himself from getting involved with what it is that the king wanted him to do. It's usually the way that this phrase is used. It's it's like, what about me and you? in a sense of trying to distance me from you and your agenda that you have going on. Uh, And so Jesus is very, very much kind of saying it in that way. Woman, what what of me and you in this case? But why, he says, because my hour has not yet come. And the hour is used really often throughout the Gospel of John here. Uh, the, the hour meaning, I'm not ready for the miracle. You know, let me give it a bit more time. No, no, no. The hour is a loaded phrase in the, new, in the gospel of John. For example, later in John 7, 6, he'll say, Jesus told them, my hour is not yet here. When his brothers were trying to get him to go up to the feast. A couple verses later in verse 30, it says, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Next chapter in John eight twenty, it says, He spoke these words in the temple court near a place where their offerings were put, yet no one seized him, because his hour had not yet come. Now, we know that in the Gospel of John, as we've looked at the overall structure of it, somewhere around halfway, you know, as the... The raising of Lazarus really does spark things that the gospel of John, the second half of it is all basically the last week or so of Jesus's life, which is the hour for which he has come. Jesus came not just to live. Jesus came to die and his hour is going to be the hour of that great glory. And so in John 12, 23, Jesus says, now the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. The next chapter in John 13, it was just before the Passover festival. So now we're just days before. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the utmost, which is when he then washes their feet. So when we hear Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, know that as Mary intercedes in his moment of reflection, she is disrupting for him this contemplation of what it is that he really must do and what always is in a sense hanging over his head that I am here. Yes, I'm enjoying this party, but what I'm here for is something that goes so far beyond that. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I I love that about Mary, by the way, and that she's, she's not floored by this. It was not an endearing phrase that he loaded her way, but she also knew, "Mm, but you know what? One way or another, he does the right thing. And she's treasured a whole bunch of stuff in her heart, the Gospels tell us. So she also knows that he's got a little something, something more than she even appreciates. And even though she cannot comprehend it all, she knows that within him is more than enough solution for whatever it is that ails this party at at the very moment here. So she says, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. It was the thought that stone would not be contaminated in the ceremonial washings, each holding from 80 to 100 to 20 liters. So so six. By the way, John's gospel has a good bit of imagery and metaphor that goes on here. And the idea of the number six is not necessarily a terrific one. Uh, the idea of seven is the idea of completion. The idea of six is this idea of incomplete, uh, not quite right, is the feel. If you're a first century Jew reading this and you're reading about six stone water jars that are here, something that is not all the way there. Uh, These water jars are already kind of being emptied as well because they're going to need to be filled later. But these water jars are also a reminder that ceremonial washing is critical for all of God's people, us, them. Why? Because of sin. And those stone water jars are a reminder of a sinful fallen world that requires ceremonial washing, even to go about some of the normal niceties and etiquette of even a wedding itself. Jesus said to the servants, I'm in verse 7, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Master of the banquet would have been some kind of a combination of a kind of cheerleader for the event, trying to inject joy, bring joy, also a master of ceremonies, an organizer, a a wedding organizer of sorts, but would have also been one of expertise and one with discriminating tastes. And so the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. That idea of first of the signs could also be translated the chief sign that he did, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And so here's the dilemma that Jesus is facing, that he doesn't want to tip his hand too early. He knows that there is still quite a bit of work to do and still quite a bit of righteousness to accumulate so that ultimately when he gives us the gift of his righteousness, it will be an overflowing fullness of beautiful righteousness that is ours through the grace of God. So there is more for Jesus to do, more for Jesus to visit, more for Jesus to fertilize along the way, so that when his hour comes, it will be with the full effect that the hour is meant to have. But yet there's this dilemma. There is still this friend of the family. Cain is just a little ways away from Nazareth. They're both small villages. There would have been some sort of an interconnection, obviously. Mary seems to be quite uh, integrated even into some of the activity there because she's the one who's able to direct the servants. She seems to be quite committed, if not an owner, of the events as they're going down. So again, there's a lot of deep uh, intimacy, connectiveness between everybody here. And Jesus obviously does care. And with that, he has to, in a sense deal with the dilemma of how do I take care of all of this, but yet not really tip my hand too early. And so he decides in a discreet way to nonetheless bring about the deliverance that is absolutely required in order for this to be an event of ongoing honor rather than one of shame in an honor and shame society. And ultimately it brings about A faith, not broad faith, as some of his later signs will do. But what it does is now that he's still in the first week of his disciples following him. You could go through chapter 1 and 2. See the chronology of it. We're just three days after the calling of Nathanael just a little while ago. And now in these early stages, these disciples who are hanging on his every word and hanging on his his robe of sorts, his, his cloak as he walks around, they in this intimacy have observed him. And come away now deeply believing in this one that they follow. Now, as we consider this passage, this is no small thing, and it's no small thing because it is regarded as no small thing. It is the first of the signs that Jesus performs, it is the first of the signs that the Holy Spirit captures for us to see. It is at a wedding. It's not just merely some sort of a social embarrassment that is going on here. In John's Gospel, things tend to have symbolism far beyond just what we see here. And so as we go through John's Gospel, unlike a lot of the other books that we've gone through, we're going to have to extend what we see here to greater spiritual implications. And and so we begin with that right here in Cana at this wedding. Now, my first point as we take a look at this is, eventually the wine runs out." That's a truism for this wedding, but it's a truism for all things in a fallen world. In the book of Mice and Men, uh, that Steinbeck book title is inspired by an older poem uh, just simply called On Mice, but in that poem it has a phrase that might be familiar to you. The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. It's actually Old English in the poem, so it sounds a little bit more difficult. The best laid schemes, oh mice and men, gang aft agley. Hmm, there you go. All right, that was hopefully my only like ultra nerdy tangent. I'm back. <laughs> but the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray and leave us with but grief and pain rather than the promised joy. All wine runs out. The rabbis had a saying that would have been widespread, pervasive, even at this time. Where there is no wine, there is no joy. A Jew would not have missed the symbolism here that as the wine runs out, so then does the joy. And in our life, so many things that promise us Fulfillment and joy and peace and deliverance and security—they run out again and again. It's the case for all of us. We've we've all known this, but this is this is a together wedding, though, right? Best laid plans. This wedding had servants. This wedding had a master of the banquet. It's a regional festival, and now they're facing a disaster a debacle, not just of social proportions, but it might have even been, according to some who have tried to study the cultural background on this, it might have even had, believe it or not, legal implications for, for what it is that you, in a sense, signed up for, for engaging in what might have been. You know, judges, we see a wedding that lasts seven days. That's the only basis we have for saying that all weddings were seven days. We, we don't know if it was a two-day wedding, which would have ended here with the wine, a three-day wedding, a four-day feast. Uh, Those could all be different. It didn't necessarily have to be a week-long feast, by the way. But it was a big deal. It was a rearranging of your life. And it was a commitment of the community to engage in this. And they were facing some consequences. Again, no rejoicing without wine for them. But again, that is saying something. It is saying that wine represents more than we see here. It is transcendent joy itself on display. It's festal joy. It's it's rejoice in the Lord joy. It's that deep, secure satisfaction of ultimate fulfillment. That thought that you have, oh, then I will arrive. Then I will be a whole person. Then I will be who I was always meant to be. It's, this, this deep, secure, rejoice in the Lord joy is the very thing everyone here, as you sit here, you were created to crave. Mm-hmm. But it's the very thing that this life, this fallen world, can only hint at. Yeah. Tease you with it. Mm-hmm. And eventually, fail to deliver it. You first start a new thing and you think, it's gonna deliver it! Right? The the, the dopamine is, is, is pumping into your brain. Everything seems new and exciting and shiny. When you first fall in love, when you first enter your chosen profession, when you first taste a little professional success, when you find a new friend, maybe you gain a new hobby, maybe you embrace a new planning and reflection program that's going to make you the together person. Maybe you find that summer getaway that's going to form the fabric of memories to transform your entire family. Maybe it's when you turn on your new Samsung Note 9 or iPhone XS Max, sorry, XS Max. I am so embarrassed right now. (laughs) But when you do, there's a little piece of you as you kind of get that norepinephrine hit, that, that dopamine hit that you think, you know what? I know I've been disappointed before, but I think this is gonna be it. I think this is gonna be the tipping point. This is going to be my deliverance. But it never delivers because the feelings begin to fade even as you begin to contemplate that. Discontent, disappointment settles in over each successive experience. And what do you do? You can shake your fist at the universe Shake your fist at your new iPhone XS. A lot of times you just shake your fist at yourself. Or God forbid, you shake your fist and say, I need a new spouse. I need a new job. I need new friends. They're not fulfilling me. My consumer desires are not being met here. Mm-hmm. Come on, bro. C.S. Lewis, as he often has, great insight in mere Christianity on this very idea, this unmet need, this constant discontentment that seems to pervade our souls. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires already exists. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire? Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only perhaps arouse it or suggest that there's a real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other hand, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or an echo or an image. I must keep alive in myself the desire for the true, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country, to that other place, to help others do the same as well. And so we know this phenomenon. If only I had that, my life would be complete. Then I would be happy. But people will tell you. People with good marriages will tell you. People with good jobs will tell you. People with fulfilling family experiences will tell you that if you put on those things all the weight of transcendent, eternal security and deliverance, those things will collapse under the pressure of it. And the only thing that could handle such a thing as that is something eternal. Something otherworldly, something greater than the here and now, something godly is the only thing that has the capacity to bear that weight that you want to place upon it. And instead of blaming those things, what Jesus says is, the only way you'll ever find who you really are is if you come to me, unite with me in faith. When that happens, There'll be a day, and it's coming, and you, you know this, in which you will enter into a feast forever. It's an image that's used again and again. Come, enter into my Father's happiness, where people will come from the East and the West in festal celebration, a feast of feasts, the thing that your soul yearns for. It's all waiting for you. The feast is so great. The best wedding feasts in history of the world are dim shadows in comparison to what is waiting for you and has already been guaranteed, established for you. Because even as Jesus is at this wedding, even as he is at this wedding, he is contemplating the greater wedding. You, the bride, contemplating the greater feasts that really really awaits. You know, in Isaiah 25, it was always the it was always the intention, it was always the plan even through the old covenant. Starting in verse 6, where God says through Isaiah the prophet, "On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds people, the sheet that covers the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, everyone will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That annoying feeling that is still aching away at you as as you sit here frustrated by the essence of an incomplete deliverance in your life, that is only screaming at you that there's something more. You were built for something more. And at this party, they all appreciate that you can Have your act together, and things still fall apart in a fallen world. Best efforts at this. And as a result, at this wedding, you've got a young couple. A bride who dreamed of this day, and now it's upon her. It's the day of days, rejoicing and rejoicing. A groom, so excited, so honored among his elders, that are all about him, so enthralled with the beauty that is with him, but an inch away, more than he even knows, from what would be a shame that would cling to him for generations. A shame that he would never be able to shake, nor would she, plus a master of ceremony, supposed to have himself together in matters like this. Likewise, about to have a reputation that would cast him from this activity and perhaps profession for the rest of his living days. All of that is just around the corner. They don't even realize it. Mary does. She brings it to Christ. And what Jesus does is take away their shame. How does he do it? He goes to those tanks of shame. Those six stone jars. But why is it that he can... You know, it's not just, did he do the miracle? Not just... But why is it that he has the ability to do this miracle? Why is it that he is able to take away all this shame and bring all this gladness? Well, the the why of it all is is because he's contemplating his hour. And he knows that he will bear all that shame. Just as he bears all your shame, just as he bears all your sin, that in that hour, in that hour of the cup, he is going to take it all. The cup of God's wrath. The cup where... Where he says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. He bears it all. And as a result, he saves the best till last. Instead of this being a Cana ceremony that people will all talk about as a byword, as a proverb, as a morality tale, to remind yourselves, check the wine, check the wine. Instead of it being that... Now when you go to Cana, by the way, one of the biggest tourist attractions is to buy Cana wine. You know, we've gone to Israel more than a few times and we kind of fall for that trap. Oh, it's Cana wine. It's got to be really good. I don't think Jesus made it. But again, in, instead of all of that, and, and, and as we sit here now, even if you're in Christ, And there's another stumble and you forget the wine and you fall down on your responsibilities. You, God forbid, fall down on your righteousness and embrace sin. Even in the midst of all of that, you still have the best to last. I love that about our covenant with Jesus is that not one person here has hit their peak of glory days The best is saved to last. There are so many things where we start with great enthusiasm. This is going to be great. This is going to be it. I'm going to finish P90X. You wait and see. (laughs) Off I go. I had to travel. I got the sniffles. A friend came in from out of town. There was a flood, a terrible flood. I couldn't finish. It wasn't my fault. But, But in the end... I'm, I'm still flabby. <laughs> right, I begin with enthusiasm, but that's not enough. You can begin a lot of intentions with the energy of newness and enthusiasm, but what this miracle is telling us is that with Jesus, your walk with him, your marriage in his name, your occupation where you work for him as if you're working for the Lord and not for man, Everything that you do is going to get better with age. He saves the best to last. It's not, oh, I have this great testimony in a fit of emotions. I came forward and I prayed Jesus into my heart. He is Lord. He's wonderful. He's terrific. How many times have you heard something like that? Only to see that person quickly kind of tail off in the, in the curve of their walk with Christ. That's not Christianity. Christianity is nothing of that. Christianity is a constant sanctification, a constant growing, a constant abundance, a constant beauty. And as we stay in Him, stay close to Him, stay close to Christ as as He brings us through this this wedding event of of our lives, of being the bride and await to be the ultimate bride for Him, day after day, real power from Christ actually makes you better than you were before. I love that that's the case. My prayers now are more intimate than they were, even as I was a young Christian on fire. My insights from the word run so much greater. My fire within to share the gospel with people as I'm having a conversation with them is really something that I I can't even shut out. It's like I, I want to be able to concentrate on finishing this transaction for my Super Big Gulp, which is not 64 ounces. It's really 42 ounces. It's now been reduced to 38 ounces. And when you factor in ice, it's really just about 34 ounces, maybe 33 ounces. I had to correct something from a sermon a couple weeks ago. I'm glad that you know now how many ounces it really is. Well, anyway, i got to complete this transaction right here. and you know, it's kind of, but, but the whole time, I, I can't even think about it. Why? Because as I continue to grow and to mature, all I, all I can think about is, oh my goodness, I, I have a significance to my walk in Him. And it, and it grows, and it grows. Praise praise God. Amen. I've had plenty of things that I've done in life where I thought I had really put it together. I remember early on, I was, uh, I was working for Coca-Cola, but I'd also started a bed and breakfast out in Springfield, Illinois, near the Lincoln home site. And I, I knew what it was to start up a new business unit at a bottling company. I was a, a corporate rep that came in and had an expertise in helping that bottling company start up a new business unit. So I, I worked with the consultants. We looked at all of the organizational challenges. We came up with teams and timelines and project management, Gantt charts, to, to complete all of that. And, and we did. We, we, we did it under schedule, under budget. It worked great. Praise God. And then I thought, ah, I'm going to take all of that and I'm going to make my own business plan. Not some like you know lame business plan like mere mortals do when they start up at a small business association. I will bring my expertise to bear in this little venture that I'm going to have with the, the Mischler house bed and breakfast. Henry Mischler lived a few doors down from Lincoln, by the way, in case you want to know. But anyway, so we named it. It was his house. Uh, and... And I did, I, I had the business plan, I had the vision, I had the objective, I had the the, uh, the the cash flow required, all I mean it was all there, the marketing strategy, the positioning, and the tech, all of that was there, and I, I kind of brought it to the bank and thought, man, I haven't seen something like that before, have you? <laughs> I didn't say that out loud. Because, you know, I knew how to hide my unbridled arrogance. <laughs> And, and, uh, and I remember the bank saying to me, okay, uh, thanks for all of this. Tosses aside, now what collateral do you have? Ah, uh, my incredible expertise. Mm, I don't think you understand the meaning of the word collateral as I'm trying to say it here. But anyway, eventually... Kind of get it all together, get the place up and running and you know, have these great brochures, get it to all the different tourist centers, and all. get it online. Well, there was no online then, it was 1990. But anyway, get, get, it, get it in, in all of the right places. And, and then the phone never rings. I think, like, wow, all I've done is establish a really good tax write-off for, for a failed business right here. But I thought, man, I've done everything, everything so well. And yet it just kind of fizzled into nothingness. This is going to be my great personal achievement, my side hustle while I'm still doing the Coca-Cola stuff that'll kind of point towards, hey, you know what? I don't need this system to succeed. I can do this on my own. I'm going to have personal fulfillment from that. And and it still stings to this day. I, I don't know what it is from you where you felt like, man, I really kind of put all the pieces together. And maybe it didn't fail. Maybe even worse, it succeeded wonderfully. Because even if that's the case, you probably still ended up at the end of the day saying, Is that all there is? Yeah. Yep. If that's all there is, then, as they say, let's keep dancing. But that is all there is. But here's the beautiful part in Jesus, what's coming is even better, what he has done is even better. As he's at this wedding, and as he's at all of our events of our life, he is looking at all that they have done at that wedding, looking at all that we have done, and really meditating on, am I able to bear all the mess of this wedding? Am I able to bear all the reasons why there are six jars that hold 180 gallons of purifying water for the sin that flows so freely in this group right here. Am I able? Am I willing? Will I do this very thing? This wedding is a seminal event in Jesus' ministry. This wedding is a big deal because it talks about the frustration of our human experience, but also the intervention of the ultimate bridegroom Amen. the ultimate groom who has indeed fashions for us to be in the most intimate beautiful festal celebration where we'll finally know the longings of our soul we'll know it with imperishable bodies we'll know it with the, with the Celebration of angels. We'll know it with the recreation of all things. We'll know it with a beautiful new world. We'll know it in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. But it doesn't just happen for nothing. It happens because Jesus keeps looking at those stone water jars. Keeps looking at those stone water jars. And knowing that the only chance, the only chance we have to the other side, the only chance that we have to know the longing of our soul is to confront those stone water jars head on. And so he will. And so when his hour comes, when it finally comes, and he's in the garden, and he's praying for you, when he's experiencing the suffering of his soul, as he's thinking of me and the reason for those stone water jars that in some way try to bring purification for all, for all of my sin and transgression, As he he thinks about all of that, he is determining, there even at that wedding, you're worth it. You're worth it. Because he would not have been able to bring the wine then if he wasn't willing to bear the shame later. He isn't able to bring the joy to you to have a deeper understanding of of your purpose, your your understanding. If if he wasn't willing to bear your grief, to bear your pain, to bear your sorrows, to bear your failures, to bear your Henry, Henry Mishler House flyer that you created. But he bears not just our sin, and our aches, and our pains. But he bears the shame that doesn't need to be yours here and now. Don't walk another day with any of that. Spend yet not another moment letting that cling to you. It didn't cling to them. It didn't change the trajectory of that family for generations. And so now it can change the trajectory of you and your family for generations. Let it be taken from you. He said, let this cup go from me. In the hour, he will have to confront some wine. It's the cup of God's wrath. It is a bubbling, over, crude image of all that he's going to have to do. And here's the beauty of it. He does it. He does it. And so that for all of us, as he does so, as he resolves to be able to take all of that on, we get to rise up. We get to enter into the feast of celebration. We get to have a hope that is around the corner. We get to have that now. We get to understand why it is now. It's not based on how well you plan your wedding, how well you plan your life. It's based on how Jesus intervenes in every one of those poor planning, poor sitting, poor efforts that, that we make. It's all based on Him, not on us. And all we have to wait for is the joy of the ultimate gathering where we get to see this in full technicolor. And as we close out, a simple little charge. Our life to the full charge. Drink deeply. Drink deeply from this joy that is already yours. What, I see? what happened? Oh, I see. <laughs> Drink deeply. This is a week where we're going to gather in small groups. We have a chance to have joyful connections with one another. And bring it on. Determined to make this week a week of new joy, new wine, new connections, new friends. Let it be a time of epic rejoicing.